All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation 6 this morning. Walking through all of Revelation 6, not a long chapter. We have a few other things uh, to cover first, however, this morning. Uh, The day of the Lord has come. It is now at hand in Revelation. Last week we spent time in chapters 4 and 5. And in chapters 4 and 5 we covered the preparation for the opening of the seals. Recognizing that Jesus Christ is the worthy one. He is the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the Root of David. He is this one who is worthy to open the seals, who is worthy to pour out these judgments upon the world because he was slain, because he has purchased redemption for his people. As we understand it, in the timeline of events, at this point, the church has been removed from the world. And in this, we would expect that the world rejoices. The capacity for self-deception among the human race is almost limitless. Among a very large portion of the world, the Western world in particular, the removal of those who follow the true and living God would be seen as a great thing, would be seen as an opportunity for humanity to finally move forward without this anchor that is this group of people called the church. This was, is in fact the great dream of many in a, a, a secular philosopher, men like Friedrich Nietzsche, a revered intellectual of, of the, the previous generation, read in, in colleges and universities today, held in very high esteem. A man who believed Christianity's love for the weak and for the innocent was one of the greatest hindrances to the progress of mankind. Nietzsche longed for the destruction of Christianity and its concepts of humility, submission, and pity. He called Christianity, and I quote, the one great curse the one great intrinsic depravity, the one immortal blemish of mankind. With people like this writing and, and influencing the generations, we might expect that if the Lord were to take the church out of this world, take us out of this world, it would be met not with fear, not with trepidation, but with rejoicing among those who see us as the great hindrance to societal progress. We'll see that Jesus teaches us about this time in Revelation 6. We'll talk about it when we'll go to Matthew 24 as we lay the foundation. He teaches us of a time when the love of many will wax cold. Strong delusions, people believing lies... These descriptions are all over the place in the scriptures. We read this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. It is interesting as I uh, read over that and studied for this because I was listening to a conservative commentator and one of the things that this man was saying, it was a couple weeks ago, and he's both a moral and a political commentator, Jewish man, and he was saying that he believes that in 100 years mankind will have progressed beyond this 
horrible thing of eating meat and recognizing that meat should not be eaten. And there are many on both sides of, 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 of any philosophical sphere that believe that, that eating meat is, a, is something that, uh, that humanity needs to get beyond, that it is barbaric. This idea of forbidding in marriage. It is interesting that uh, as you look in ancient times in the depraved and pagan cultures, if you go back through pagan cultures, it was very uncommon for pagan cultures to see marriage as a positive. In fact, quite often they saw uh, uh, sodomite relationships, homosexual relationships as, uh, the, as, as a positive, and they saw the marriage relationship only for that of procreation. And we live in a world now that is looking down upon this idea of procreation, looking down upon the idea of repopulating the earth, of continuing to populate the earth. And as such, we can actually see the groundwork for these very things. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats in the philosophies that are beginning to take hold or have taken hold in our day. This will be a time of the doctrine of devils. People will be spiritual, but their, their spirituality will be driven by seducing spirits, by demonic teachings, not by the truths of the Word of God. Consciences will be hardened. False demands will be placed upon society. We read a similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 8 and then verse 13. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away, Paul says. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Jumping to verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul describes here empty religion. Again, tremendous spirituality, but driven by demonic ideas, by demonic ends. Excessive knowledge and learning, but no grasp of the truth. All this sounds very much again like our time, does it not? People are not enforcing general moral good. Evil is allowed to flourish. But simultaneously, laws are being put on the books, banning people from using plastic straws. There's so much spirituality, there's so much knowledge. Really smart people understand a lot of things. We've got books from philosophers. The, the knowledge is no longer lost. It's just built upon and built upon and built upon. But for all of this, the truths of God's Word are completely missed, completely misunderstood, completely lost. That those that are good are despised for their goodness. And this is where verse 13 helps us. Because though we see these things now, we understand that with the passing of successive generations, things are going to get worse and worse. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean things cannot get better. May I say that? Things were really bad before the Reformation as well. Things were really bad before various uh, revivals, the awakenings and such. 
doesn't mean that things cannot get better. But what we are going to expect is that history is on a general downturn so that as things get worse, there may be times of revival where there's a recovery, but then it dips deeper. And then there may be another recovery, but then it keeps dipping deeper with each passing of revivals into um, this general discontent, this general lack of knowledge, this general inability or unwillingness to follow the Word of God. That each time of evil will surpass the previous generation even if those times of evil are separated by revivals. To that end, don't lose heart. Don't think that revival is not a possibility. As we study history, darkness often gave way to the dawn. And it was often at the very darkest points of mankind's depravity that the truths of the Word of God were able to take the, the, the strongest hold. Don't stop praying for revival. Don't stop seeking revival and don't think it cannot happen because indeed it can. We continue our study of the apostles as it relates to the end times. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This echoes what Jude writes, as Second Peter and Jude are very similar. In Jude, there's only one chapter, verses 17 to 19, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers, in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Okay, so think on this with me. The last time is a time of seared consciences, consciences that are hardened to the truths of God, mocking the Word of God, mocking the Lord's coming, knowledge without truth, extreme perversion, false teachers everywhere, seducers, doctrines of devils. Then, as we believe the Lord raptures His church, the spiritual nature of the world, coupled with evil and perversion, would not make a rapture of the church a fearful or sorrowful thing, would it? It would be a day of rejoicing for the world, wouldn't you think? That those errant people have been removed. And this is how we interpret the Word of God, so this is how I'm laying the foundation for what we see here I do want you to, to, to see, to follow this logic, to see that, how, to ask that question, how could people be raptured without there being a wholesale awakening? Well, deceptions in the doctrines of devil can make this maybe not so unfathomable. As a matter of fact, I'll give you one example modern-day ufologists, UFO studiers. We would recommend or recognize uh, a- the alien phenomena to be a demonic phenomenon. If you do the research, the, uh, it's, it's very clear that the alien phenomena is, a phenomenon is a, is a demonic one. There was a book written, I believe in the 60s, called Bringers of the Dawn, Teachers from the Pleiades. It's a book written by a ufologist Supposedly, it was a message given from these aliens that live in the Pleiades, which is a constellation, a set of stars. 
She writes that these aliens, which we would believe to be demonic, told her this. The people who leave the planet during the time of Earth changes do not fit in here any longer, and they are stopping the harmony of the Earth. When the time comes that perhaps 20 million people leave the planet at one time, there will be a tremendous shift in consciousness for those who are remaining. I apologize, this was 1992 that this was written. So we have intellectual philosophers like Nietzsche longing for Christianity to be removed, stating that only when the philosophies of Christianity, things such as pity and mercy and love, are purged from the world, can humanity become what he called the Superman. This, is, this was the foundation of what Hitler tried to do with his master race. The Superman, a man that takes the next step in evolution, that gets beyond what man is today. Uh, we call it today transhumanism. The idea of humanity getting beyond aging, getting beyond death, getting beyond illness, getting beyond injury. And then we have ufologists who are communing with these entities that they call aliens, that we call demons, becoming convinced that there will be a mass removal of those who do not align with the general direction of humanity. Unworthy humans being removed so that the human race can move forward into its enlightened future through a tremendous shift in consciousness. We would call that tremendous shift in consciousness strong delusions. Knowing these things, we need not wonder how the world would react to such a rapture. It would not cause them to glorify the God of creation. It would not cause them to fall upon their knees and repent. It would not cause these things, it would cause a strong delusion to get stronger. It would cause a newfound optimism. But it will also initiate, in our understanding of things, the opening of the scrolls. Now, whether you, know, you agree or not, at this point, we're going to study the opening of these scrolls. And today we're going, or the, the opening of the scroll, the opening of the seals that sealed the scroll. A scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals, which only the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is worthy to open. And when these are opened, the Bible says that with the opening of each one of these seals, there's going to initiate a action, an activity, a historical event on the earth leading to great destruction. And the template for what we're going to study today is what Jesus called the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24. We read this beginning in verse 5. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Jesus here speaks of 
people coming in the name of Christ, deceiving many. He speaks of wars, and he speaks of rumors of wars, a time of tumult, a time where nations arise against nations, where kingdoms arise against kingdoms. And then he says there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes, and Jesus calls these the beginning of sorrows. He then speaks of martyrdoms, followers of Jesus being hated of all men for the Lord's sake, uh, being betrayed by loved ones. He mentions false prophets. And says that in this time, this particular time of evil, the love of many will wax cold. There will be no compassion in the hearts of men. One last thing to mention before we formally begin. Good, that popped up properly. Our general timetable, as we understand it, relates us to the events of the opening of the seals. Perhaps the sounding of the trumpets within the first three and a half years of the seven-year period that we know as the 70th week of Daniel, sometimes called the period of tribulation. This is, however, and let me make this clear, this is an assumption. There's a, a number of assumptions that we're making here. Nowhere in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ does the timetable of seven years actually come up. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. The only timetable that we have is three and a half years. The 1,260 days, the two witnesses are given power for three and a half years. The, uh, those that are sealed, the sealing of the 144,000, which we'll talk about next week, which generally takes place, we would understand, at the, sixth, the opening of the sixth seal, they have a ministry for three and a half years, 1,260 days. But nowhere in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ does it actually speak of the full seven years. We get that from comparing what is happening in Revelation with what we know from Daniel. Chapter 9, where it says that the abomination of des desolation will take place at the three and a half year mark. So we make a few assumptions here. These assumptions are generally um, well-supported assumptions. When you read Matthew 24, Daniel 9, and the book of Revelation, and you put them together... Jesus says that some things are going to happen before the abomination of desolation. We just read it in Matthew 24. We can generally compare those things with what's happening in Revelation chapter 6. And so we believe that Revelation chapter 6 takes place in the first half of the tribulation or the first half of the 70th week before the abomination of desolation. So we're putting some things together, but we are still making a few assumptions. And let's not forget that. I'm teaching this and I'm teaching this as this is what we believe because it is what we believe. And it has been generally well vetted uh, throughout the course of the last hundred years, this way of thinking. It, it's, it's orthodox. It, it is right. And I believe that it's, it's fairly accurate with some wiggle room. But just remember that we are making some assumptions here. And this is one of them that we are making. All right, with this in mind, let's dig into uh, to Revelation chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So this is the first seal being opened by the Lamb, who's the only one worthy to open them. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, upon the opening of the first of the seven seals, the, that seal, this scroll that has words on both sides, which we talked about last week, John says he hears, as it were, a noise 
of thunder. Now, what this sound is, we do not know. We know that last week and in Revelation chapter 1, the noise as the sound of thunder was the voice of God himself. Perhaps that is it. Perhaps it is simply the sound of impending doom as the earth is now about to go through a terrible, terrible time, the beginning of sorrows. And one of the four beasts that is around the throne, right? We have these four beasts and one has the face as a calf and one has the face as an eagle and one has the face of a, of, of a lion and one has the face of a man. And one of these four beasts looks at John and says, come and see. So now John, from this place in the heavenlies, because he's around the throne of God, looks upon the earth and he sees this vision. He sees this man. He sees a white horse and the man upon the white horse has a bow and he has a crown and he is going forth to conquer. Now, we have in this picture the advent of a warrior conquering king. We know he's a king because he has a crown. We know that he's a warrior because he has a bow. And the Bible says that he went forth to conquer. However, we also know that this is not Jesus. Later on in the book, we're going to find that Jesus comes on a white horse and he'll have a, his vesture dipped in blood and on it a name that no man knows and, uh, uh, and all of these different things. We know that this is not Jesus for a couple of reasons. Number one, the timing is all off. Uh, the, after this comes a, a great number of terrible things, things which we would recognize do not take place after Jesus' advent. Number two, remember the lamb is the one opening the seals, Right? So the lamb is there. John sees the lamb open the seal. And then these things take place on earth. The lamb is opening the seals. The lamb is Jesus. We know that. So this is not the lamb. This is someone else, some other conquering king going forth. We would instead believe this to be the one, and we'll talk about him later, called Antichrist. It will be a man who conquers. Back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we recall that Antichrist will be known because he makes a seven-year covenant with many in Israel. This is perhaps the beginning of an extended campaign whereby this Antichrist figure goes forth to conquer. We know from Daniel, and again, we'll talk about this more in a little bit later date. We're actually going to spend a pretty good amount of time in Daniel. We'll go there for some point and we'll see things from Daniel's perspective as we try to piece this together. It's very difficult to take all of this and to piece it together in a coherent way, to teach through Revelation in a systematic way fashion while simultaneously bringing in such large portions of scripture that help us to do it. So some things are going to be done out of order. And then my, my desire is that because we've been teaching it in this kind of holistic fashion, you'll be able to fill the gaps as we go. So it may be the beginning of an extended campaign. We know that Antichrist will have a campaign of sorts, and we know this from Daniel 11. You have to take my word for it at this point, or do the study on your own, that Daniel 11 is speaking of Antichrist. But in verses 40 to 42, we read this. At that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So we read here of what we interpret to be the dealings of Antichrist as he enters into countries 
conquering, overflowing, passing over. This will be his campaign. And you notice that there will be kingdoms which resist him. This is something that as we piece together our interpretation, we would believe to be the case, that there will be a king of the north and there will be kings of the east who are in resistance to Antichrist. Antichrist will be the world leader over um, the, pe the people um, that the Bible calls Rome. Now, Rome is no longer a nation as it stands, but as we've mentioned before, Rome initiated what we call the Western world. And that Western world empire has never ceased to be the dominant empire since Roman days. And what we find is that Antichrist is going to be the head of this Western civilization, the Roman Empire, whether it's called a revived Roman Empire or whether it's not, it will be the, the Western civilization that Antichrist will be the head over. And there will be some kings who will be resistant, particularly as we study Ezekiel 38, 39, uh, Gog of Magog, who we would recognize to be also known as the king of the north. Again, as we seek to piece some of these things together. There's a lot of disagreement about those things. I understand it. But as we walk through it, you'll see why uh, we believe that as we continue. So, we have this leader, a conqueror. And whether this campaign begins with the initiation of the 70th week or whether it was something that has been coming, going on for some time and throughout the midst of the campaign, throughout the midst of Antichrist conquering, at some point he then initiates this seven-year treaty with Israel, with many in Israel, not all, the Bible says, but with many in Israel, we don't really know how that's going to play out. But one way or another, we would believe that the opening of the seventh seal will initiate this conquering king to go forth and conquer. And we would believe most likely this to be Antichrist. Verses 3 and 4. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So as Jesus opens the second seal, there's the second beast uh, there's this uh, second uh, beast that calls out to John and says, come and see. And what John sees is a man riding a red horse. And the Bible says that this, this rider had the power to take away from the earth peace. So whereas the first rider represented the establishment of perhaps a new political power, a conqueror king, the second rider represents the wars that will be engaged in in this time. The whole world will not simply fall in line, as we said, with this world leader. Rather, there will, be a, there will be great wars, nation against nation, and not just nation against nation, but kingdom against kingdom. Uh, the idea being that you have individual nations that can form kingdoms, uh, similar to what we might see with the European Union, right? The, the individual nations of the European Union, and then you have the kingdom that would be, in, in a sense, the European Union. So we have nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. The whole world is fighting. There will be war. And as we consider this, it does seem to correspond quite nicely with what we read in Matthew 24, Jesus' words about these beginning of sorrows. He said in verses 6 in the first half of verse 7, Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So we see a correlation there between what Jesus said will happen at the end of the world and between what we see it 
in the opening of the six seals. Continuing in verses 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So the third seal is opened. A third beast says to John, Come and see. John looks, and he sees a black horse this time, and the rider having a pair of balances, scales in his hands. This would have been a, a, a old, a previous generation's way. Well, we still, we still do commerce in, in weights, right? You go to the store and you look at the cereal. My wife uh, had, had purchased some cereal, and, and I said, well, is this cheaper than that other store? And, and she said, I don't know. And so what do we do? We take the amount of money that they're asking for it, and we take the number of ounces of cereal in the box, and we divide it to find out how many cents per ounce, and then by finding out the cents per ounce, you know which one's cheaper than the other. The same idea here. He has a, a, a balance, a scale in his hands, and this is the idea of commerce as it relates to food in exchange for money. Now, what's being said here, a voice in the midst of the four beasts says, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. A penny would generally be considered to be a day's wage, and a measure of barley a measure of wheat would generally be considered to be a day's usage. So the idea is that food will become very scarce. Much to the distinguishing of today, where food is quite plentiful, where worldwide poverty levels are falling at dramatic rates, and as far as recorded history is concerned, poverty is at the lowest rates worldwide in history. Much to the contradiction of what we see in that day, you work a full day simply to eat. It's a subsistence living, much like the world has done for some time. There will be famines and pestilence, a dramatic falling away, worldwide poverty rates rising again. But notice that last phrase, and see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. There will be no lack of luxuries, however, only of necessities. This is reminiscent of what you see if you study history in communistic or socialistic regimes where uh, the, the economy tanks and the necessities are gone, right? People are standing in line for toilet paper and people are standing in line for food. However, those that, the, the, the upper crust, the wealthy, have plenty of their dainties still, right? And they've got plenty of that. That's not the problem. You know, let them eat cake type idea from the French Revolution. Um, the necessities will be very scarce because of famine and pestilence. But of course, there will still be plenty for the haves. Everyone else will be deeply impoverished. There will be a tremendous, we would understand or anticipate a tremendous uh, distinction again between the haves and the have-nots. No middle class. You've got the, the wealthy and then you have the impoverished, much like many um, socialistic, communistic countries. The fourth seal is opened. Verses 7 and 8. The fourth beast says, come and see. We read this. And when he opened the, four, the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So this pale horse is seen. And death and hell are, death is, is on the horse, and hell follows. 
and to death and hell is given this power. And it's this power to destroy. And the Bible tells us that at this time, between the wars, nation rising against nation, and the famine and the pestilence, and between death, likely meaning martyrdoms and executions, and beasts destroying, the beasts are going to go wild and start destroying man, a full quarter of the earth's population will be destroyed, the Bible says. And so this is going to be a time of tremendous upheaval. We think about the earth right now headed towards some 8 billion people. A quarter of that is 2 billion. It's going to be a time of tremendous destruction between the wars and the pestilence and the poverty and perhaps, uh, and certainly martyrdoms. We'll see that in the fifth seal. But no doubt... And this is, again, my thought, so I shouldn't say no doubt. My theory is that, in many ways, this is a means to an end. It was a common principle among evil leaders who sought to create great societal change. Whether you talk about Lenin or Stalin or Mao Zedong, that they would create this social change by stepping over the corpses of those who would not fall in line, right? So we have millions upon millions of dead people in Russia, millions upon millions of dead people in China, millions upon millions of dead people in these countries where they have sought for tremendous uh, uh, societal change quickly. These things do not happen without bloodshed. And it may very well be that as this king conquers and as there's nations rising against nations and as there's martyrdoms, as we'll see in the fifth seal, that much of this is world inflicted by this spirit of the age, by this evil that is brought about with the opening of the seals whereby it seems as though in some way God is loosing his hand more and more from the restraint that he has to keep the the powers of evil at bay. And this corresponds with Jesus' teachings as we read them in Matthew 24, verses 7 and 8. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Many of these who are destroyed will be those who accept Christ in this time. We read about martyrdom in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants, also and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So we see here those that are crying out to the Lord for justice. These are martyrs. The fifth seal brings us back to the abode of God, right? With each seal, John's been seeing the seal, then looking down to the earth as the beast says, come and see. Now the fifth seal is broken and John sees this group of people. There's the souls that have been slain. And notice that this is not just the souls of those who have died from every generation. But this is a particular group of people. This is a group of martyrs. And this would lead us to believe that within this time of great societal upheaval, there will be tremendous amounts of martyrdom. And John hears them cry unto the Lord, asking, how long before you judge the world for the blood that was shed? How long before our souls are avenged? And God says to them, rest just a little season longer. 
until the end, until everyone who will be martyred is martyred, at which point there will be judgment, at which point there will be a revenge. Time is short, though. Makes it very clear. But there is still more suffering to come. So this time will not only be defined by great suffering upon the world, but they will hunt down anyone who claims the name of Christ, anyone who is saved in this time and would seek to destroy them. Wars are going on, food is scarce, and anyone who would claim the truth of God's word will suffer great peril. It is What we are going to see in chapter 7 is we're going to see a, a, a great salvation of those in Israel. It's quite possible if we believe the rapture to take place at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, that as the sixth seal will become a definitive sign to the nation of Israel, and many will get saved in Israel because of the sixth seal. We'll talk about that next week. In like manner, it is quite possible that the rapture of the church will be a sign to the Gentiles that will cause many in the Gentile world to be saved, as the sixth seal will cause many in, the, uh, in Israel to be saved. And it would be, we would believe among those that there is a tremendous amount of martyrdom as there is this fundamental shift in consciousness toward evil. This opening of the fifth seal corresponds to what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. We read it already. Let me read it to you again. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of, na- of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. So we'll talk over the course of the next several weeks about the various people who are hearing and preaching the gospel within the 70th week of Daniel. But that's the idea here, is that there are people who are being hated now for the name of Christ, who are being martyred for the name of Christ, who are being betrayed by family for the name of Christ. They're, ser- they're actively searching for those who would hold to the, the philosophies of Christ, who would hold to the truths of the Word of God, and they are destroying them, much similar to the Catholic Inquisitions of years gone by. Much similar to communist regimes who have always actively sought to destroy Christians. Uh, the missionary movement in China was vast and strong before the communist overthrow, at which point every missionary either had to run or was slain in that country, along with all of the churches and Christians that were there. These things happen in great fundamental upheavals. Verses 12 through 14, the opening of the sixth seal. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as the fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So the sixth seal is opened by the Lamb, and this initiates new wonders, and this is where we begin to see true signs and wonders in the heavenlies. Signs which God divinely is giving to the world to show that He's the one doing these things, and particularly signs to the nation of Israel. And I'm going to show you this a little bit this week, a little bit next week. This is actually really neat, and I look forward to us seeing this. So, there's a great earthquake, so much so that mountains are moved out of their place and islands are moved out of their place. Now we'll see a greater earthquake toward the end of the 70th week where islands 
sink into the sea and mountains collapse, right? So this is not that at least. These are just mountains shifting. Like if you had a topographical map, after this earthquake, you would actually see a fundamental shift in where these mountains were placed in relation to the rest of the earth. You would see a fundamental shift in where islands are located in relation to the rest of the earth because they, the, the, the plates will move so dramatically. A tremendous earthquake, stars are going to fall from heaven, the moon will become as blood. The sun will be blackened as, as sackcloth of hair, possibly from smoke and destruction, possibly from volcanic eruptions. We're not quite sure. In the falling of stars, some outer space event because the sky rolls up like a scroll together. We don't really know what this means. But it would seem to describe some fundamental alteration in the way that the earth interacts with the celestial bodies. Some believe that, there, that there's actually a rolling away of the veil so that the, the spiritual realm becomes a little bit closer. I, I, I don't see that in this, although I suppose there's a lot of unknowns here. But it does seem as though there's a fundamental change in the way the earth interacts with the other celestial bodies so that when paired with the falling stars... There's an idea that some outer space event is going to take place which will change the look of the skies, which will change the capacity perhaps of space debris to get through our atmosphere. Maybe it has something to do with the atmosphere being changed because a majority of space debris burns up in the atmosphere before it reaches the earth, right? And so we don't exactly know how all of this is going to play out, but there's going to be something dramatic and different here. Everyone will know that there's something dramatic and different happening. And while every seal points to uh, what, what Jesus Christ has done, it is all Jesus doing the work. He's the one breaking each seal. The sixth seal is the one where we see this truly announced. It's for this reason that many believe the sixth seal will mark perhaps the midpoint of the tribulation. I think uh, our Orthodox teaching on this says that, that the end of the seventh trumpet or the seventh trumpet is the midpoint. I think there's a lot to commend that. I think there's some good reasons why the midpoint might be around the sixth seal as well. Um, there's a, a lot of unknowns here. But one way or another, this will be a definitive event that marks... God really beginning to destroy the earth really marks judgment and wrath. It's this reason that the seal is so important because it is a sign. It's not just a seal. It is a sign and it's a sign to the nation of Israel. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 34 verses 2 through 4, For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of, the, out of their carcass. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth off from the vine." And as the falling fig from the fig tree. This is a description of this idea of the heaven being rolled back. And notice that in, in Isaiah 34, the description is of God's judgment on the nations. Right? So we've said that the, the two primary purposes of the tribulation is for God to judge the unbelieving world and for God to call Israel back to themselves. So as we connect Isaiah 34 to this, to this sixth seal, we see that this is a, a sign that the nations are being judged, that God is going to come and destroy them. But then we see God dealing with Israel. And we see this very clearly from Joel 2, verses 28 to 31. And it shall come to pass afterward 
that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So notice this sign to the Jews. This is the sign to the Jews that the, Lord, that the day of the Lord is coming. And the first sign, as we know from the, from the book of Acts, was the day of Pentecost, right? All Verses 28 through 30, that's all Pentecost. Peter says, on the day of Pentecost, this is the day that Joel is fulfilled. That, that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. That, that their sons and their daughters would prophesy. That their old men would dream dreams. That the young men would see visions. That upon the servants and the handmaidens would the, the Spirit of God be poured out. That there would be no difference between Jew and Gentile. This was intended to be a sign to Israel that the day of the Lord was at hand. And some in Israel understood it. And some believed it. And so on the day that Peter preached that sermon, thousands of Jews got saved. Because they recognized the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. But only the first half of this prophecy was fulfilled on that day. The second half of this prophecy is fulfilled at the opening of the sixth seal. Right? The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the sixth seal opening. That is Joel. At the day of the sixth seal, the second half of this prophecy will be accomplished. And so imagine... Thousands in Israel get saved when the first half of this prophecy is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now, if you flip over to chapter 7, what you're going to find next week is that there's a ceiling of 144,000 of the nation of Israel. Would it be any wonder to us that when this, the second half of this prophecy is fulfilled, the Jews open their Bible to Joel chapter 2 and they read that and they say, this is the Lord. And then they go to the book of Acts and they say, they read in Joel 2 and they say, why is only the, the, the second half of this prophecy being fulfilled? Where was the first half fulfilled? And then they go to the book of Acts and they find out that on the day of Pentecost, the first half was fulfilled. And they say, Jesus Christ is our Messiah. And they're saved. This is God's first physical outreach to the Jews within the tribulation period. Where the sixth seal is opened and the obvious sign to the Jews of the day of the Lord being at hand comes to pass. And the Jews, just like in the day of Pentecost, many on that day were saved. In that, in that same vein, it would, it would make sense at least, right? That many in Israel read the prophecy and say, this is Joel. We need to get behind Christ as Messiah. It's perhaps surprising. It's perhaps not surprising, excuse me, that the following chapter will teach about the many saved in Israel. There's one thing I want to clarify here before we move on, though. There's some who attempt to link the prophecy here in Joel and the sixth seal to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And they say, this is corresponding to Revelation chapter 6, and this is corresponding to Joel chapter 2. And uh, the pre-wrath rapture folks believe this. Uh, many in the post-trib believe this. 
So because of this, they say, see, the sixth seal has to take place after the tribulation. The sixth seal has to take place after, if we follow Jesus' teaching, after the abomination of desolation. After the midpoint of the tribulation, or the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, they call it. But this is not what we find here. Here we don't see the moon turn to blood in Matthew 24, 29. We see the moon darkened. And we see these things also directly associated with Jesus' second coming proper, right? Well, pastor, that's a pretty small difference. Are you saying that because the moon says it's darkened instead of turned to blood, that this cannot be the sixth seal? Oh, no, not intrinsically, except that there is a prophecy that's much closer to this that comes to pass. So we just read about the sixth seal in Joel 2, right? And that's pretty clear. Sun should be darkened, the moon should be turned into blood. That's pretty clear. Look what we read in Joel chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down. The press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This is a harvesting of the evil. This is something that correlates very closely to Jesus' second coming, when he will harvest the evil, destroy the evil. Multitudes, multitudes, verse 14 says, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So here we read about the coming of the Lord, right? We read about the sickle being brought into the earth the, the, to, to, for the people to experience the winepress of God's wrath. That's going to come later in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we read about the valley of decision. Here we read about the Lord's coming to avenge his, his children and to protect the nation of Israel. And notice once again we see signs. But notice that these signs correlate much closer to Matthew 24, 29. The sun and the moon darkened and the stars withdrawing their light. To that end, I would not regard Matthew 24, 29 to be the sixth seal. So to put Jesus' return at the sixth seal or just after the sixth seal, which would have to be after the midpoint of the tribulation, after the tribulation of those days, much rather I would link what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29 to a separate event, not the Joel 2 event, but the Joel 3 event. The Joel 2 event is the first initiation of signs to the nation of Israel that things are happening. Many get saved. The Joel 3 event is the actual harvesting of the wicked from the world at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So the sixth seal initiates God's wrath in a way that the world has never seen. But what we see in Joel 3 is the harvesting, the actual destruction. And I think that there's a distinction there which, which is, is, is valid to make. The most important part is this, that by this point, by this seal, at the point of these signs and wonders, the world is not dark. They are not ignorant as to what's happening here. They know that this is judgment. Remember how we talked at the beginning about a world that might see the disappearance of Christians and it would not phase them? Is there precedent to think that there might be such a strong delusion in this time? There is. And we see that as we finish the chapter here in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. The Bible says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, 
and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The earth is now reeling from these signs and wonders. A quarter of the earth's population has been destroyed. They have been martyring Christians. Perhaps, who knows? Perhaps if it's like other social upheavals, maybe they've been martyring the handicapped or killing the handicapped and, and, and euthanasia with the elderly and the whole, the whole nine yards, right? So, the, so people have been dying. Wars have been raging. Uh, there are tremendous wars. There's famine throughout the world. Uh, some of that famine may be a result of war. That often happens. You go and you salt your enemy's fields, those sorts of things, right? So we see all of these terrible things happening. And then all of a the sudden, there is this cataclysmic natural disaster. The beasts have already been destroying men. They've already been eating and, and, and killing men. And now we have the heavens roll away as a scroll. Stars are falling from heaven. Mountains are being moved. Uh, um, islands are being moved out of their place. It's this terrible cataclysmic event. The, the, the sun is darkened. The moon turns to blood. Great men, influential men, wealthy men, poor men, everyone, they're running into caves. They're running into rocks. They're trying to avoid the destruction, this cataclysm. And they're so terrified that they actually beg the rocks just to fall on them and to kill them. And notice this. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. And they acknowledge, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? See, they know this is the wrath of God. They know that they are attempting to create a godless society in the face of Almighty God. They know that this has made God angry. They are not ignorant of what's going on here. They don't just think this is a natural disaster. They know that this is God's wrath. This is God's judgment. This is God's anger. They acknowledge that it has come, that none will be able to resist. But do you know what's interesting? Is they don't say, Lord, forgive us. They don't say, we repent. They simply say, hide us from the Lamb. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. Three applications. They'll be brief this morning. As we step into this time of destruction, and it's going to be a little bit wearying. I don't know if you remember the book sermon. It got a little exhausting. Talk about all that death. It's going to get a little exhausting again. The first thing I want to remind you as we step into this, this, this evil time where evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse is that the judge of all the earth will do right. We are reading about the natural culmination of millennia of men's evil. And I remind you, we talked about this Sunday night, I believe last Sunday night, but I remind you of a phrase that Abraham used just before God went to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in their days of evil. Abraham says to the Lord in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and spare not the, the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked the Lord if he would destroy the city if it had fifty righteous in it. We're not going to go through the entire story, but God, of course, says no, and then they, they go on this 45, no, 40, no, 30, no, 20, you know, uh, down to 10. That's not really the point. We're not, we're not going there today. The point is this. 
And it's not even necessarily about the fact that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. We, we talked about that in Jeremiah. We've talked about that when we talked about the rapture. But this one thing we know. Jesus is the one opening these seals. This is the wrath of the Lamb. And to whatever degree we see the wrath of the Lamb, to whatever degree we see the judgment of the Lamb, to whatever degree we see God's justice poured out upon the earth, this one thing we know, the judge of all the earth is doing right. He is doing right. The things which we're reading about must be by extension of the fact that God is doing them right. We hear reports of governments and corporations doing things doing good things, kind things, and we question their motives. And we say, well, there must be some ulterior motive because they wouldn't just do something, right? They wouldn't just put themselves at some disadvantage. They wouldn't just do something out of the goodness of their hearts. That's not how governments work. That's not how corporations work. We're, we're naturally skeptical. We hear politicians, and we don't, it doesn't even register to us anymore when a politician says, I'm only thinking of the people because we know that that's just never true. Right? So it doesn't even register with us anymore when a politician actually claims to be speaking or representing the people that he is supposed to represent. We know that that's not the case. It never is the case. The same can be said about many pastors. The same can be said about uh, many vocational workers. You, you have a, a plumber or an electrician or someone come and they give you a quote and you say, hmm, right? I wonder if they're actually advocating for me in this or if they're representing themselves in some way, shape, or form. Who knows about any of these people and their motives for telling you what they're going to tell you? But this we do know when it comes to God, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will. So we don't have to question God's motives here. We don't have to question God's justice here. As a matter of fact, and, and we know this as believers, justice needs to come. Uh, God needs to avenge. Wickedness needs to be purged. And that's our second point. Do remember here that righteousness, the righteous will be avenged. The hope of the saints is twofold. We'll talk more about this next week. Rest from the sorrows and lives of tribulation that's brought on by this world of unbelief, by this body of sin that we can't escape, and by the ravages of the sin-fallen world within which we live. These are things that we can't escape from. We can avoid many of the snares of this earth through living a righteous life, through obeying the Word of God, but at the end of the day, they're still wicked people. At the end of the day, we are still in a sin-sick world. We can't avoid all of it because we live in it. Because we are born in this state, we are but dust. The second part of our rest, however, is the assurance that righteousness will be avenged. Deuteronomy 32:43, Moses wrote, "Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people." Psalm 3, we read this in verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. The righteous martyrs of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6, at the opening of the fifth seal, cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? And God says, wait just a little season longer. In their day, it will be a very little season. In our day, it might be a, a perhaps longer still, but this one thing we know, the righteous will be avenged. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you are walking in obedience 
That obedience that Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That obedience that has called you to deny your flesh and to live in a manner that the world doesn't understand and maybe the world doesn't appreciate. Maybe you are hated of all men for Christ's name's sake. Maybe you are scorned. Maybe you have lost family. Maybe you have lost friends. Maybe you have lost people close to you because of your desire to do what's right. That's going to happen. But this one thing we know, we are on the right side of history. The righteous will be avenged. The Lord has His eye on those that love Him. Third and finally, remember that unbelief has nothing to do with knowledge or evidence. One of the things which we must understand from this passage, a theme which runs pervasively throughout the book of John and our Lord's teachings during His first advent, is that people do not fail to believe because they lack the knowledge or evidence of God or of His judgments or of His salvation. People fail to believe because they lack faith in His judgments and in His salvation. People say, if only I had some proof, I would believe. If only God would speak to me, or if only God would appear to me, or if only there was some sort of sign, then I would believe. May I just remind you that this, this isn't the problem. The problem is not that there, there lacks evidence for God. The problem is not that there lacks even reasonable reason-based evidence for God. The problem is the unbelief in the hearts of men. Now, of course, there are those who have not heard. There are those who are truly living in ignorance of the God of all flesh because they've never heard that the light of the gospel has not been shined in their hearts, and that's our job. But there are so many who know, who claim they cannot believe because this message of the gospel lacks some measure of credibility. And may I remind you that on that day where the sun is darkened and the moon turns to blood and the stars fall from heaven and the earth shakes and people know that the judgment of God are at hand, they do not say, Lord, forgive me. They say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It's going to get even worse as Revelation progresses. There's going to come a point where they simply shake their fist at God. We learn of this concept from Luke 16. I was going to turn there. I'm not going to turn there with you this morning. In Luke 16, we have a story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, I'll, I'll bring you to the end of this. Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. We'll just call it heaven for simplicity. The rich man goes to hell and he is burning in the fires of hell. And the rich man looks across a gulf and he sees Lazarus sitting in Abraham's bosom. And he says, Father Abraham, just let Lazarus take one finger and dip it in water to parch my cool, to, to, to cool my, my parched tongue because I am, I am suffering in this flame. And Abraham says, Lazarus can't come over there. There's a great gulf fixed. And he says, well, then at least send someone back to my brothers and tell them that they need to get right so that they don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no, that, that would not do. They have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, no, 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 but if you sent someone back from the dead, surely they would believe. They don't believe Moses and the prophets. But if you sent someone back from the dead, surely then they would believe. And as we get to the end of their conversation, Abraham says this, the rich man says in verse 30, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Of course, foreshadowing Jesus' own resurrection. Look, Jesus has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. 
This world was created and aligns perfectly with what the Word of God says. What more proof does any man need? Proof is not the problem. We have not just the Law of Moses, but we have Old and New Testament. Yet people don't believe. God will pull the very heavens down upon their heads. They will not believe. Because the unbelieving heart will always find an excuse not to believe. The only thing that can melt the heart of unbelief is the power of God in the life of one who is willing to open his eyes. Some are willing naturally. That's why we try to reach children as children. They're far more willing at that age. Some are made willing through trial. They are brought to their knees by trials to where they have nowhere to go but God, and then they turn to Him. Others are made willing by some measure of proof, such as the prophecy of Joel 2, and they read the prophecy and say, this must be true, therefore the rest must be true. But until the heart of stone is melted, it is impenetrable. To this end, perhaps there is someone here this morning who is resting in some measure of unbelief. And this will be our personal application this morning. There are two different levels of unbelief. The first is unbelief of salvation, of the gospel itself. That you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe that you, you, you've, you've done your good works. You've been at church. You know what you need to know. But you have never come to the point where you have actually said, Yes, Jesus died on the cross for me. Yes, there's nothing I can do to get myself to heaven. I can't earn it. I can't be worthy of it. Jesus must have done it for me. You don't have a plan B. You're not trying to get there on your own. And you say, I can't. Only Christ can, and you accept the gospel that Jesus did, that He is God, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day in victory over the grave, that He is in the heavenlies, that He's coming back for His own. And when you do that, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says old things are passed away, all things are become new. Maybe you today are in that place of unbelief. You're just waiting for that last little bit of evidence, for that last little bit of proof. You're just waiting for that one more layer. You're just waiting for that one more thing, one more proof that I'm actually a sinner, one more proof that God is actually real, one more proof that His Word is actually true. The Spirit of God is true. The Spirit of God convicts hearts. Truth is self-validating. Jesus did rise from the dead. His grave is empty. His tomb is empty. No one has found it. History validates it. What more can He say than to us He has said? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would today be the day that you yield? That you say, I do believe it. That your unbelief becomes faith. But perhaps there's those here today who have also been picking and choosing the Word of God. Perhaps as we talked about communion today and the Lord the Lord's Supper and fellowship. There were things in your heart and the Lord said, you're not in fellowship. The Lord said, you, you, you're not in a place. And maybe there's things that you're struggling with right now. And it's because in some way, shape, or form, you do not truly believe that the blessings of God for you to do right is worth what you feel like you have to give up. And there's a barrier of faith here. Faith always precedes blessing. You say, well, God, if you'll first give me the blessing, then I'll know that it's real enough to give up what I should give up. It doesn't work that way. God wants your heart first. And when you open that door, then the floodgates of blessing can come in. 
that verse from the song Trust and Obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay for the favor He shows and the joy He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Faith first, blessing after. How are you doing today? Unbelief has nothing to do with how much you know. I know you know. You know I know. Unbelief has nothing to do with evidence. Unbelief is about a choice in our hearts. Let's allow the Lord, His Word, to be our confidence. Unlike those who, when God literally tore heaven down on top of them, said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, let us say, worthy is the Lamb. Fall down at His feet in reverence. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.